note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We good? Yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. Good morning, Brian. Hey, Ethan, how goes it? It goes, it goes. I was just thinking about Harry Potter today. Do you realize it's been more than 24 years since the release of that first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? Oof. You know, my son wasn't even born and I was still in my 20s. Man, that one hurts. Uh, you know, I can't believe how long it has been since we all started reading about the Wizarding World and the Cursed Child. You know, today is actually a pretty special anniversary for Harry Potter. <laughs> today is the 20th anniversary of when the first movie, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, hit theaters in the UK and Ireland for previews. Yeah. It would go on to get a full release just a few days later and make more than a billion dollars. Man, that's insane. And it was both the movies and the books that helped shape TT Games' take on Harry Potter when the team there developed Lego Harry Potter, years one to four, and Lego Harry Potter, years five to seven. And that is the subject of today's episode. Yes, it is. Now, before we get started, we should warn you that if you are aware of Harry Potter but still haven't somehow read the books or seen the movies or played the games, well, this episode is packed with spoilers. So don't listen if you haven't watched, played, or read the books. Okay, back to the show. It must be amazing to work at TT Games, not just because you get to help create some of the most endearing family-friendly games in the world, and of course work with Lego bricks while doing it, but also because you get to really dig into the heart of pop culture. That's so true. You know, the, the list of franchises of imaginary worlds that TT Games gets to examine and recreate is staggering. Of course, it all started with Star Wars, an examination which continues to this day. But there's also Indiana Jones, Batman, Marvel, DC, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Car Caribbean? Uh, Caribbean? Uh, you know, we keep having this <laughs> discussion. What's funny is <laughs> it's always, when you look at it on paper, it just looks like we're saying the same thing over and over again. Anyway, let's get back to it, right? <laughs> There's also Lord of the Rings, Doctor Who, Scooby-Doo, A-Team, Rock Band, Portal, Jurassic Park. It's a long list, and it's basically everything that matters in the world of pop culture. But for some at TT Games, the cherry on top of this wonderful buffet of creativity was indeed Harry Potter. At least that was the case for Arthur Parsons, who worked on most of the LEGO TT Games and was the game director for both LEGO Harry Potter titles. He tells us he was over the moon when he found out that TT Games landed Harry Potter. Like my inner child just like leapt up and down. I was so, so excited because it was the game that I'd wanted to do, being a massive Harry Potter fan. 
And yeah, I just stood up, said, this is great news, walked out of the room and went and did a little jig down the corridor. I was, I was so, so excited. Arthur said he adored the Harry Potter books since the first Philosopher's Stone hit in 1997. The books continued for a decade and Arthur's love for them grew. By 2008, the books were joined by just as delightful a series of movies starting in 2001. The film adaptation of Philosopher's Stone was joined by Chamber of Secrets the following year, Prisoner of Azkaban in 2004, Goblet of Fire in 2005, and Order of the Phoenix in 2007. I think for me, when you think about Lego games and, and, and what they are, you know, the cooperative aspects, the puzzling, the exploration, the retelling of fantastic stories, Harry Potter, you know, at the time was just ripe for us to be able to play with some amazingly fantastic characters, some obviously fantastical locations and, and creatures and all the stories. And what Harry Potter brings when you sort of turn it into a Lego video game is something completely different to anything we'd done before. You know, Lego Star Wars was all about retelling those amazing stories through through galaxies. Lego Batman was bringing superheroes to life who are saving Gotham and yeah, everything that superheroes bring to the table. Lego Indiana Jones was very physical, the, the pick-up-and-play aspects of all the interactions that are in the game and, and effectively, you know, for want of a better wording, duffing up bad guys. Harry Potter brings something different. That it isn't a case of going around duffing up goons. It isn't a case of retelling stories in quite the same way. And it's just an exciting challenge. And when you're a fan of something, you just want to play in that space because you know you can do something completely different. And I think that was our starting point when we had that blank piece of paper that just said Lego Harry Potter. It's like, how do you transform these seven books and then obviously subsequently the eight movies into a video game? And it was an incredible challenge to just know where to start. And at that point, it would have been a case of like, what do we do? It was a series of like get-togethers, myself and a, a small group of designers sitting in a room, effectively brainstorming, just going, what can we do? What can we do that's different and new, faithful, and more importantly, really exciting? Because I think the uh, Lego company play sets had actually come to an end at the time, and we didn't need to get the game green lit because I do believe that there were plans to reboot the play materials it was more a case of getting what we wanted to do with the game greenlit. Initially, the discussion centered around how exactly to divvy up the source material. There was so much presented in those movies and books and so much potential in the universe as a whole, the team had to figure out the best way to turn all of that into a game that did the property and its compelling stories justice. But then the team started looking at that future game through a different lens. Do we do one book, one movie at a time? Do, it was a real challenge. We actually sat there and thought, let's just put that to one side and think about what the play experience is that we want gamers to have. And that was when, you know, after sort of a few days of, of mulling over thoughts and concepts and ideas, where we basically said, look, what we should be doing is what the IP does, which is is giving you that experience of being a wizard. Uh, 
rather than say just create say six levels you know stitch them together with a narrative why don't we actually try and bring hogwarts to life why don't we try and bring the wizarding world to life because at the time we hadn't done anything like that and we always tried to push each game forward to try and make sure it was new and exciting in some way and um, and we just had this idea of could this game be like almost like a modern incarnation of something like school days and it kind of went from there key problem solved by this approach was that unlike something like Star Wars, which is packed with iconic adventures that feature good versus evil battles, Harry Potter was a much more narratively driven piece of storytelling. It was, at its heart, the tale of Harry, Ron, and Hermione's journey through adolescence and into adulthood. Turning that into an action game meant taking a very different approach. Well, there's a constant threat for Voldemort, but there's not a constant threat in terms of you know, hundreds of stormtroopers or, or or loads of military personnel like in Indiana Jones. It's a different property. So it's actually a really difficult thing to bring to life because the things that we'd traded in terms of, you know, go into a, a room, say, in Lego Batman and then a load of Joker goons come in or henchmen and then you'll you'll have like a, a bit of a, an action fight sequence and then you'll puzzle your way to something else. You don't have that because like Hogwarts is all about the kids effectively going to school. That's, that's what it is. You know, it's a school of witchcraft and wizardry. And so you have to sit there and think, okay, can we maybe make a game that's just the big beat points? But then you look at some of the big beat points and it, it may be Harry on his own in a certain situation, or, or it may be that it's a quite a complex story. So you have to sort of like, I guess, distill everything back to, okay, we're going to have to do something new. That There aren't enemies just patrolling around left, right, and center. There aren't things that we can necessarily lean on. We've got to be really inventive here. And that was where we were like, what, what is Harry Potter at its core essence? It is a journey of witches and wizards learning about who they are and, and, and what they can do and being their best versions against this this, I guess, overarching evil. And that was when it was like we settled on the fact that, yeah, we're going to have to bring a school to life. And we hadn't done anything like this. We hadn't done anything open world. Not to say that Lego Harry Potter's open world, but it, it kind of is. It's those first steps. It's You're going into a living, breathing school where you see the students from the other houses. You've got lessons that you go and you're going to have to go to attend. And yeah, it was it was really exciting when we got to the point of realizing what we wanted to make uh, and and then we had to uh design it which which in itself is a challenge because it's a pretty big school that ultimately led the team into creating what would become the game's biggest character a living breathing detailed version of hogwarts every book follows a similar path of sort of like catches up where harry is at that moment in time and and then take someone's on his journey to Hogwarts and then sort of like tease up that year or that book's kind of end game, all with sort of like the stitched together finesse of the wider story arc of, of the Wizarding World. And so we had to sort of sit there and go, well, actually, in some of these adventures, there may not be a consistent number of things that we would want the player to experience. 
you know, there isn't necessarily the same number of lessons or the same number of key events or, you know, when Harry, Ron and Hermione are dealing with Buckbeak down at Hagrid's Hut and, you know, everything's different. And then especially as you go later on, when the Wizarding World expands to obviously the London area and Ministry of Magic and everything. So we had to almost build something that was future-proofed. And the way to do that was to have a school that, I guess, unlocks as you grow through everything from the Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone, through to yeah, the Deathly Hallows. It also solved the issue of the Harry Potter books not necessarily aligning with the core action of combat found in most action video games. Conflict is often the thing that propels a video game along, but Harry Potter didn't have enough of that. It was a big enough concern initially that the team discussed whether the game would ultimately appeal to the same fans who purchased Lego Star Wars and Lego Indiana Jones. We did actually have conversations around how is this game going to feel to effectively the gamer at the end when they've purchased it and they're playing it, when there isn't that sort of ease of, I'm going to just be able to duff up whoever's near me, or there's, there's, a, there's a stream of bad guys through every door, or there's a high action sequence like round every corner. First and foremost is like, th there's no combat. That iconic thing that's been in, you know, Lego Star Wars, Lego Batman, Lego Indiana Jones of being able to do melee combat, being able to use weapons has gone. And obviously anyone that knows Harry Potter knows that most spells are actually not offensive spells. You know, there's obviously the killing curse, but most spells, I guess, engaging or, you know, you've got defensive spells, but then you've got a load of really creative ones. And so how do you make that game all action? And that was the sort of the worry, I guess, early doors. The worry was, are players going to really engage with this in the same way as they'd have engaged with the previous Lego games? But I think as soon as we had an early version of Harry running around with his wand being able to cast spells and have fun, it's sort of like all of those worries were dispelled because it was suddenly incredibly engaging to be a Lego version of Harry Potter as Hogwarts came to life and you could interact with the other students, you could see the, the various sort of like teachers from Hogwarts and interact with those. It became a very early open world game where you're free to explore. And I think that was the beauty of it or, or the magic of it. So yeah, you might need to go and follow Nearly Headless Nick to the next thing that was going to progress the narrative. But if you didn't want to, guess what? You could go and explore the grounds. You could go and sort of fly around on a broomstick. You could just have fun zapping plants and people and making weird stuff happen. And then we realized, yeah, you don't need combat. This, this is going to be great as exactly as it is. The solution was to essentially create a massive play space where people didn't have to rely on combat to have fun. But yeah, we had... That starting point, I think, was Gryffindor Common Room, which obviously in the film is a small room with a number of beds. And we made that fun and exciting. You know, you could zap the bed and it would shake. You could, you know, cast your wand and bring a chest of drawers to life. We had paintings on the wall that were alive, just exactly as people would see in the movies and would engage with you and interact with you. and. Everything was suddenly like answered for us as, as, as a team was, okay, this is the solution. The solution is the player should be able to interact with everything that's Lego 
and there should be some whimsical, magical reaction. And that way, people are going to go around and actually be spending their time exploring and, and almost the, the sort of like exactly what Lego Company is about, which is the magic of play. It just became a grand play space of fun with the narrative always there for you to sort of like obviously continue through for those that wanted to progress through the Harry Potter stories. Once the team knew they were going to make Hogwarts not just the setting, but an integral part of the game's experience, they had to figure out what parts of the school to focus on and, just as challenging, how to depict them. Not everything that the team wanted to put into the game was detailed in the books or movies. The first thing we had to worry about was the, the actual layout of Hogwarts because you read the books, you watch the movies, and we had to watch and rewatch and re yeah, and to be fair, it's not a chore. We love Harry Potter and, and everyone on the team did, so it wasn't a problem. But we were looking and watching to see exactly what the layout was. Where was the toilet corridor? Where was the sort of different common rooms, the staircases, the grounds, Hagrid's hut, you know, the boathouse, Dumbledore's sort of office. Where, where are all these things sat? Where are they all laid out? And so we kind of broke everything up into the classrooms, the dormitories, you know, the great hall and got all the locations we wanted. And then we sort of created our own map of what we thought that was and then kind of mirrored it to the movies because obviously all those amazing shots in the movies where uh, I think it's in, in the very first movie where they're all arriving by boat and you get that lovely shot over the water that, that kind of sweeps up over Hogwarts. All of those sort of images, we were using those to kind of create our own version of Hogwarts. But then obviously because it's a game space, those spaces need to sometimes be exaggerated or distorted slightly so that players are always having fun and, and the navigation's easy and you know even if you're going down to the Quidditch pitch and everything needs to sit right because we didn't want players going on a really long walk anywhere at any point but it had to feel authentic so you just suddenly felt I am a Lego minifigure I am Lego Harry Potter running around Hogwarts and it felt great at that point it's like okay we've got this We've taken the risk elements away of like no combat and a whole new structure and it works. And then, yeah, then we just had to, I guess, fill in the blanks, which is, I guess, the next tricky part. In practice, Lego Harry Potter years one to four tried to deliver an experience that didn't feel like you had to return to a hub, like the cantina found in Lego Star Wars, to pick a new area to explore. Instead, they wanted the entire Wizarding World to feel like it was a hub. They were essentially trying to design the game to feel like an open world. What we did was we just unlocked different parts as you progressed through the books, through the movies. And we would, at times, depending on where you were in the story, we would maybe have to close an area off or open up a new area. But we wanted it to feel 100% authentic. So if you were in Diagon Alley, you could go into Ollivander's one shop. You could wander down and, and see other things that you recognize. You could go into Gringotts Bank. You could go and find your way to Nocturne Alley, which was, you know, again, a really cool thing to add in. And then you could go into Borgen and Burks. And so the whole thing was a living, breathing hub, I guess. But that also came with tricky parts because, you know, take Diagon Alley, for example. There are points in the books and the movies where 
things change. Um, you know, you have the Weasley's joke shop, which gets sort of put there in Fung uh, Six. So these things had to also change as as the the game sort of like progressed along, and that I think was the real challenge: making sure that at no point was anything not authentic. If that makes sense, it had to be nailed on authenticity to what a Harry Potter fan would want. And at no point were we ever going to get anyone say that we had not done it justice. John O'Brien, who was the producer of that first game, called the new approach to the game's hub an evolution from previous LEGO games. So we, we hadn't really gone as far and as expansive as, as what we did in years one to four in, in past LEGO titles. And it felt like an opportunity because the, the, the wizarding world of Harry Potter had magic. Um, we felt as though we could really explore the hub and we could affect. So if you go back to the Lego Star Wars games where there was the cantina, this was like a, a modern day version of, of, of kind of, of that, but set within Hogwarts. And it was really Arthur's vision with his set of designers and obviously with John Burton's input as well to essentially push this, this expanding Hogwarts hub to be effectively the center, the nucleus of the whole world for years one to four, so that we could essentially build a Hogwarts castle that would be changing. It would be accessible via certain abilities or certain wizards that you would unlock through the story itself. So essentially, it was about ensuring that we delivered on a Hogwarts that offered the core mechanics and the unlockable characters to offer a great gameplay experience, but at the same time, to still make sure that we we kept true, making sure that the castle felt alive, to ensure that there was replayability, because that's really, really important for LEGO games, but just to make sure that we got that balance correct in the sense of we want to create this all-forever, all-living, all-changing Hogwarts and make sure that, that that would be respectful and true to the world of Harry Potter. Deborah Crook, lead technical artist on the game, said the decision to build the game without a hub also led to some fairly big technical issues. It was Crook's job to make sure that all of the game's set pieces fit together and played seamlessly. It was one of the first games that we'd made that had such a kind of a large exploratory world um, and it radically sort of changed how we ended up sort of structuring our data to help have this this world that opened up over time. Um, we had to make a lot of adaptations to how we'd done games previously, just so that we could build that, you know, the Hogwarts world. And for one, Hogwarts was a lot of very, you know, small bits all completely linked together to make a big exploratory space. And the idea that throughout the progress of the entire game, there was bits that were persistent and bits that weren't. And it did mean that we had to do a lot of work on our editors and exporters, just so the thing that we used to get the models out of Maya and into the uh, data that the game engine can read, we had to do a lot of restructuring just to enable that. And it, yeah, it was something that did bear us in good stead for future games because it meant that there was much more separation between the environment art and the gameplay because previously they were bound more together. And, 
yeah, it, it was kind of a challenge to do that because at first the idea was that each of the four years when you were going around Hogwarts, it would be a completely new set of gameplay. And on top of that being a hell of a lot of work, that would be also be kind of confusing for people playing through it. Um, so when we made the decision to sort of make it into a more kind of persistent experience it just meant that we had to do a lot of work with our existing systems to enable that deborah added that breathing more life into the setting of the game also helped to set it apart from all of the tt titles that came before it we wanted to make just a lot of the interactions a bit more rich and a bit more detailed because previously they were kind of, you know, they'd be very singular. They'd be either things that blew up or things that did one thing. And we developed a system for kind of packaging little sort of collections of these things together. So, the, you know, even just something as simple as being able to blow up a pile of books and then restack them using magic. And, and we developed like lots of like an editor that meant that we could sort of package these little things up and then place them around yeah so there was there was lots of ongoing little things like that that just meant that we can put more detail into into the what the interactions and what was going on while the team was more focused on making hogwarts feel alive with activity they still needed to divvy up all of the source material ultimately the team decided to center their attention around the first four books and movies of Harry Potter for the first game, due for a 2010 release, a decision that was driven in part by the movies that were still coming out. There was no way you could get all of that stuff into one game. There's just so much source material. And when you look at it and think about it, we had all of the movie reference to work from for quite a number of the movies, you know, five movies, and then obviously the sixth one as it came out. But the things that happen in Deathly Hallows and the new locations that get added, we didn't know what they would look like or, or, or how they would be portrayed or, or how those events would necessarily change. And I think just because of the sheer scale of everything, we just looked at it sensibly and thought, look, this is like way more than enough content for a game. The sheer amount of time for a, a year's one to four playthrough, it's, it's pretty lengthy. So we just looked at it and thought, let's just split in half what we're making here. And given there's eight movies, the logical thing to do is just one to four and, and five to seven, because with Deathly Hallows, obviously spanning the two movies. And it, it was just the logical sort of like marker point in between. And um, yeah, we, we had already sort of worked everything through for what the scope of everything in terms of the real estate. It was just a case of, I guess, timing more than anything. John said that length also played an important role in that decision. You know, years one to four offered a great opportunity for, you know, a good length for a video game. It's also kind of like not, not so much the halfway point within the books themselves, but but essentially it just it offered a real digestible chunk of the game where we felt we could take enough of the Lego franchise, the Lego world, and look at all of the diverse range of characters that we had inside the Harry Potter universe to create a really compelling set of locations and also a really set of compelling mechanics to bring the synergy of both of those fantastic worlds together, the Lego world as well as the Harry Potter world. 
There's also a pretty strong tonal shift in the books and movies around the fifth year at Hogwarts. Harry and his friends are getting older, they're dealing with more personal issues, and the wizarding world itself is starting to see some pretty dark events looming. All of which meant that year four and Goblet of Fire felt like a natural breaking point for the two games. In terms of how we sort of were to approach the second game, we didn't really know what we were going to sort of like focus on until we'd kind of finished the first, because we wanted to make sure that people were happy with Harry Potter years one to four and really make sure that everyone was like, this is great. You know, this game really does do the IP justice. And, and once that game released and, um, you know, we saw sort of the reviews and, and how consumers like played it and enjoyed it, it was then a case of looking for the second game to see, is there anything we could make better? And I think we made a few changes to the way that the spells worked and um, some of the controls. But effectively, the second game was like the whole thing was designed early doors. And um, it was then just a case of ensuring we delivered to the best of our ability as a team. Once the team nailed down the look and feel of a living and breathing Hogwarts meant to represent the experience of being in the wizarding world and settled on telling the stories of the first four books, the next step was deciding which specific settings and plot points they had to focus on. It was all about what are the things that people really enjoy um, from Harry Potter. And, you know, when, when I say people, you know, the core team, we were all pretty big Harry Potter fans. It was more a case of just going through and going, right, as we look through the movies and the books and you reread them and you, you know, rewatch them, what are the cool moments? You know, the cool moments of learning how to fly a broomstick or learning how to, you know, use your wand or, or just even getting your wand. There are so many moments in all of the books and all of the movies that we did pretty much what we would always do where we'd just go through and then come up with a list of things we wanted to do. But also knowing that there were going to be these big set pieces we were going to build to, whether it was, you know, the Chamber of Secrets and the Basilisk or whether it is, you know, a, a showdown with Voldemort or anything like that. We just wanted to make sure that we did justice to all of the key moments. And then, the, I guess, padding's the wrong word, but the sort of like the, the extra content that's there are all the things that sometimes um, are kind of skirted over when people sort of like remember stories that, you know, they might not necessarily remember the fact that the kids go to like Honeyduke's sweet shop or something. But that's cool and exciting and interesting. And why wouldn't we allow that? Why wouldn't we focus a little bit of attention on that? Why wouldn't we go to all these extra areas? Because guess what? They're really cool. Our, I guess, um, ambition for both of these games was that Critics and gamers alike would sort of sit there and say, you know, these are the most authentic games based on Harry Potter, uh, which is what, like, ultimately the review said, which was super exciting um, as a development team to read those things. John said the process of sorting through what to include from the books and films usually started with Arthur and his team, who would dream up the designs and then shift those designs to the production team for review. Um, I remember myself personally having a, a file, and this file was to essentially ensure that any of the areas where we believe we may need to ask for approval, 
across certain elements. We had to put them forward um, and make sure that they were happy with it at all times. Sometimes, so we would do that from a paper perspective. Then obviously you get it into game code and it's sometimes very different to what is on paper. So we would then also set up regular reviews where possible, where we could, to ensure that the content was also reviewed, whether it be via a, a video clip or you know, via game code. But essentially, we would go through that process to ensure that what we were trying to create was true to the, to the fiction. With each new game, each new franchise that TT brought to life with Lego bricks and minifigures, they also tried to push forward the idea of what it meant to be a TT Games Lego title. That meant not just expanding the settings and improving the graphics, but also adding new and interesting features to the game. For Harry Potter, the team worked on a new mechanic that would allow players to feel like they were freebuilding in the game to solve puzzles. Deborah said the development team called those moments locomotives. That was developed for Harry Potter. And it, it, the idea that you'd be able to move using under physics and be able to snap the bricks together. And it was quite a clever system, actually, because it used to work out roughly. It, it would know where the studs would be because we'd mark it with a particular terrain type and it would go, well, if you're using that, then they must be in this position. Therefore, we can click these together in this position. And then, yeah, we'd kind of define a plane to move them on. And, um, yeah, that was nice because it, it felt a lot more free than the typical building that we'd had in previous games. And it, the kind of typical building that we'd had in previous games became Leviosa, you know, where you could sort of build it you know, like the force would be in Star Wars. John said that nailing that mechanic took a lot of refinement. You have to consider the weight of the physics objects inside the world. And also a lot of things can go can go wrong with physics just across, you know, multiple aspects in regards to we had. I remember one time when we tried to implement it, we had flying Lego bricks right across one side of the level to the other. And that's purely because the physics at that point just wasn't mature in the code base. They hadn't had the refinements in the time. But that's how it came about. Uh, a lot of input from uh, who was then the head of Lego, Jim Cunliffe, Joel Hodgkinson, who was a, a key programmer, been at, at Travel Tales for an awful long time. All of these people, all these programmers worked together, these these artists, to, to try and find a system that really worked well and, again, just brought a, a different, different ways to play. The team also wanted to capture not just the wizarding world writ large, but the way in which author J.K. Rowling told those stories and gave life to its characters. Capturing Rowling's writing style and the nuance of some of the shifting relationships in it was its own challenge. I think for anyone that can remember picking up their first Harry Potter book, before you know it, you're at the end of the book. And that's nothing to do with the length of the book. It's the fact that you get engrossed in the story and you get engrossed in this journey of a, of a kid who's you know, effectively getting picked on a little bit. He doesn't really know where he fits he goes to this witchcraft and wizardry school, which is just this whole new place full of wonder. And then you get teed up with like, oh, all right, there's a big bad in this universe. And then you just want to read the next book. And you just want to know more about the stories and, and the characters and, and the support characters, whether it is, you know, Cho Chang or whether it is Draco Malfoy and what are their backstories and why are they how they are. And, and I think all of that comes out in the books. And so we're there then trying to make sure that that gets told in a Lego video game where there's no speaking. And, you know, there are some complex 
sort of areas of story. You know, if you think about how the, the Black family tree gets explained, to try and do that in a Lego video game cutscene with, with no speech is a real challenge. And so we, we basically made everything visual. The best way for me to describe our approach is these are books that very quickly have become a staple for kids for years to come. They're the sort of, I don't know, the, the, the Enid Blytons, the Roald Dahls of our, our generation, our era. And, you know, we just wanted to make sure that we delivered a video game experience that, that everyone would appreciate. Another challenge the team ran into was ensuring that the entire game could be played with a friend. In the books and movies, there are plenty of pivotal moments that happen without two main characters present, but the developers wanted to make sure the entire game would be playable with family or friends. There are definitely moments where Harry is the focus of the narrative, and we we had to take ever so slight creative liberties. But you have to. This is a Lego video game. This is built on drop-in, drop-out, co-op gameplay. You can't suddenly like flash up a message that says, uh, hey, player two, sorry, you're going to have to drop out while, while Harry relives his iconic moment. So yeah, we just had to make sure that we, again, we were as authentic as we could be and, and just sort of maybe pick up on like, well, actually, who else would be there? Who else was in that vicinity or in that location or could potentially have been with Harry. Lego Harry Potter years one to four hit pretty much every platform in the summer of 2010, landing neatly between the theatrical release of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince in 2009 and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one in 2010. Deborah said she has so many fond memories of working on that first title bringing those books that she and the rest of the team grew to know and love to life. Yeah, I mean, it's always great to sort of when you can see it finally coming together, but at the same time, it's very difficult because, you, you know, you, you, it's impossible to fix every tiny minor thing. And, you know, you can see things that other people will never see. And it's very difficult to play them because you want it to be perfect. And quite often, you know, we'll make it as great as we can, but you'll always see little things that you think, oh, if we had only had a bit more time, that would have been great. We could have just polished that a bit more. But, you know, you can say that about anything, really. Because quite often when you're developing, you don't have time to just sit there and play it from start to finish as the audience would. And and it's at that point when you do start to sort of just sit down and almost take a step back and start playing it through as a, you know, someone who's bought it with experience. And it is amazing when you suddenly start playing it that way, you think, oh gosh, you know, it is, it's quite a rich, detailed thing that we've made. So yeah, yeah. After a short holiday break, work started on the sequel, Lego Harry Potter, years five to seven, a game that brought forward all of the learnings and general approach of the first game, but also a whole slew of new challenges, not least of which, the much darker subject matter. You know, for anyone that's watched the movies, read the books, there are some areas, some moments that are incredibly dark. You know, in, just in terms of what's happening, you know, you have things that occur with Dumbledore, the whole backstory of Professor Snape and, and how he was in love with Lily Potter, 
his interactions with James Potter, how obviously he is in league with Voldemort to some extent, and how those things sort of are exposed in the books and the movies. And you're there then trying to make a Lego video game for kids. It's like, how are we going to do these moments? Yeah, there are some, there are some pretty uh, dramatic sort of sequences that, that we had to look at and go, right, what are we going to do here? You know, you've got Cedric Diggory who meets his sad demise. We've got to kind of make that lighthearted and enjoyable and fun, but still authentic. And I think the challenge is how we actually delivered on those moments to ensure that our target audience just had a great game experience. You know, Cedric Diggory has to die, but at the same point, we don't have to dwell on it. We can kind of try and make light of it in a way that only we could with the Lego video games. And I'd like to think that we that we did those moments justice, whether it was Cedric or or, or Snape or... Yeah, there's too many of those moments to mention. You know, I think the end result was terrific. It's just, yeah, lots of sleepless nights and um, head scratching sometimes trying to make sure that that everything was done tastefully. And, um, yeah, we just, we basically just carried on. I think, you know, for me, Lego Harry Potter was an amazing three and a half years of my life. And um, I look back at it incredibly fondly. You know, fantastic team making two terrific games. While there was a lot of reuse between Lego Harry Potter years one to four and Lego Harry Potter years five to seven, there was also quite a lot of improvements on the tech used to create the game, said Deborah. Certain things that were developed a bit further, like sort of making it easier to like not have to pick spells so much, you know, it was kind of more immediate. Um, and there was a few more mechanics that came in that were more specifically to do with the later years. Um, but it certainly built on the first game, but then expanded it. You know, there was there was a bigger hub. It, it had the same environments as the first, but then also expanded into things like Hogsmeade. And I seem to recall as well, because you were kind of guided through the first game. So you knew where to go by Nearly Headless Nick and his ghost studs. You know, you'd follow him through. And I think in the second game, he'd give you a bit more information about what kind of things you could collect in the area you were in and things like that. Part of the effort to make the sequel not just as good as, but better than its predecessor was incorporating new ideas, new gameplay mechanics, and some visually stunning departures from the first game. The tale of the three brothers and how it was delivered, both in the movie and the game, stands out in particular. It's a moment in the movie that is just lovely. It sort of unfurls this um, sort of, I guess, the... Um, this is where um, Luna Lovegood's dad, Zinophilius, is is effectively going to betray Harry. And, um, you know, that location in itself is just amazing, the, the, the Lovegood house. And then you get this beautiful transition watching, um, I think it's a feather fall into a puddle and then the ripple. And you go through the journey learning effectively about the sort of death and the, the Elder Wand and everything else. And at that point, when we saw that, I remember as a team, we were like, okay, we have to try and do this. Effectively, we did the same with the legitimacy lessons where you sort of effectively turning back time. But in this one, it was like, okay, this, this is so beautiful. As a piece of film work, what can we do that's different? And that's where we came up with 
playing the whole thing out in a sort of, I guess, a limbo-esque 2D gameplay experience, which I think, again, is you don't get to look back very often. But when you look back, it's like, for me, was just the end result was exactly what you set out to do and really justifies sort of like the effort that went into it because we had to get that seamless approach of you're in a Lego Harry Potter level. We're going to then blend you in the cutscene to take you into this sort of monochromatic, like completely different art style universe. And it was great. There was like a little mini team that worked on that sequence and they just did an amazing job. And anyone that knows the books, knows the movies, when they play that, I'd like to think that they all sit there and go, okay, this game was made by people that love this franchise. This is the only time I personally have gone with a team from one game directly onto the follow-up. And I think at that point, because it's so, so fresh still, everything you're doing, you kind of have to double down your efforts to um, push things forward. And I think there were so many things that we did in five to seven because you stacked the books next to each other. I imagine one to four and then five to seven. I imagine the five to seven piles probably twice as high if you just literally got the books. There's just a lot more content in there. And so, yeah, we did have to kind of push things a little bit further to try and um, make sure that, that we got things on. Because, yeah, you've got the Battle of Hogwarts, which is, yeah, again, that was that was a real challenge to to sort of like get right. So, um, yeah, but we would always push ourselves forward. Of course, as we've talked a little bit about already, the final books and movies of the franchise bring with them a much more adult tale with a much darker tone. The team at TT had to figure out how to make that work while still injecting the studio's trademark humor into the game. Yeah, Harry Potter is a very unusual, I guess, series of books. You know, you've got those people that you know would have got the first Harry Potter book in 97, I think. You know, over the course of the next, I guess, 10 years, those readers will have grown up with Harry Potter, will have grown up with those books, will have grown up with those stories and been on their own journeys. And I think tonally there is a, a significant shift in, in the books as, as that audience and that universe or the Wizarding World sort of grew over time. But obviously, from our perspective, we had to remember that Lego Harry Potter years five to seven could be getting played by, you know, I don't know, let's make up a game, a little Johnny, age six. Well, guess what? You know, he needs to have the best experience. And again, that's where, you know, this, the skill of the development team that, that I was lucky enough to work with lies in that they could effectively take these, you know, different tones, these sort of more serious storylines, but still make them fun and whimsical and rewarding, but still make them authentic. You know, you're not skipping past any of these iconic moments, you know, Snape in the boathouse or Dumbledore, you know, falling from the astronomy tower. These moments are still there, but they're retold in a way that I think only Lego video games can do them. Sort of more lighthearted. Yeah, you know, I, I remember seeing the cutscenes for the first time on a couple of occasions, and yeah, that incredibly sad moment where everyone stands there holding their wands up, I guess celebrating Dumbledore. And and when I saw the cutscene, I can't off the top of my head remember what the gag was, but the fact that they slipped a gag in there was just like I, I was just like, you I'm not sure that that's right. But then I look back, and it's like that is right because. Guess what? It's a super serious moment. But let's remember, we're Lego video games. We're all about fun. 
So yeah, you slip a gag in. And that, I guess, is where things really, really worked. Yeah, when you sit and you play those games as you can now, obviously in, when they're bundled in a collection, they look like they were both crafted at the same time by the same hand, and they're just authentic to Harry Potter. So you don't even notice that there are these massive tonal changes or, or it just feels like an amazing Lego video game, you know, from the very first bit of, of year one through to the end of year seven. Lego Harry Potter years five to seven hit in November 2011, just months after the conclusion of the Harry Potter films with the release of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part two. Like the first Lego Harry Potter title, it was well-received. Both games were combined for the Lego Harry Potter collection, which was released on PlayStation 4 as a timed exclusive in 2016, and two years later in 2018 on Xbox One and Nintendo Switch. The games proved important, not just because of their whimsical take on an already whimsical and enormously popular property. The Lego Harry Potter games also proved to TT Games that the studio could branch out beyond the traditional action titles that focused on combat and physical confrontation to games with a more explorative nature. Arthur says the studio always tries to take away lessons from games it works on. I think what it taught us was to trust ourselves in terms of not being afraid to try new things. Because if you think of like where this sort of Lego series went from that point, Lego Harry Potter had a living, breathing Hogwarts, like everything was alive. There were people running around. There was this sense of it might be made out of Lego bricks, but it's real. You know, it's alive. And I think from that point onwards, you know, as a studio, we went on to release Lego Batman 2 with an open world Gotham, Lego City Undercover with a real open world, Lego Marvel Superheroes with a living, breathing New York. And I think what it taught us was we can actually make more expansive, more brilliant games. You know, let's just keep pushing the envelope. And, you know, I, I think if you do plot your path through um, Lego video games, they just grow game on game. And I think, I think that's testament to, I guess, the, the series and the brilliant people behind, behind uh, I guess, the, the games themselves, the development teams. They just constantly do the very best job they can on every game that, that they make. I mean, the, the thing that stands out to me is it was probably the most enjoyable experience I've had working in games. This is John O'Brien speaking. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to move on to Sony and work on the Little Big Planet franchise for over five years. Uh, I work with Quantic Dream, um, working on a title called Detroit Become Human. And essentially, you know, from the get-go, the Lego games have always been quite true to, to my core foundation of the game. And I love platform gaming. I love the Lego world. And also really, really enjoy the Harry Potter franchise and everything that that has to offer. And from, from a personal perspective, it was one of the most enjoyable game developments I've ever had. It was tough. You know, we had, we had times when it was challenging, but the team really made that. Deborah. John Hodgkinson, Jim Cunliffe, Arthur Parsons, Stephen Sharples, Will Evans. There are just tons and tons and tons of people who pulled together to, to make the game what it was and what it is today. And yeah, from a personal perspective, it was, it was a great journey. I learned an awful lot. Um, particularly, it kind of put me in the position I am today to, 
to be able to work on and influence games the way I do from the position I am now, particularly with it being my first game to produce and having a great relationship with the staff that I work with. I think that was the thing that I take away more than anything. And Arthur, whose passion for this particular game was one of the reasons we decided to include it in this podcast, says the game holds a special place in his memories of working at TT Games. The memories that were made are probably some of my fondest because it was a a prolonged period of time. It was three and a half years of just being immersed in this amazing world. And I think as such, because of my my sort of affiliation with the, the fandom and the memories that got made, it's probably my fondest memories, you know. And that's making the game with, with the amazing people, but also some of the fun stuff that happened outside of it. Not many people can say that they walked a red carpet on a, a Harry Potter movie release. Like, that blew my mind. What also blew my mind was asking Rupert Grint for his autograph, but calling him Ron, which, like, was just, I guess, a schoolboy era 101. But he was the kindest, like, person when I apologised and he just sort of said, it happens all the time, don't worry about it. But yeah, the, the memories were amazing. Just everything about it. Being able to obviously visit Leavesden and, and see how things were being created and being able to transfer them into the game and working on one of my favourite properties. Yeah, it's definitely a, a mega highlight of, um, uh, I guess, of, of my time working on the LEGO games. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescenti and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescenti. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Manuel Lindinger and Andreas Holzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Disclaimer voice is Ben Ungren. Openings child voice is Milo Vincent. Music by Peter Primer, foundermusic.com, and excerpts from the LEGO Harry Potter video games. We'd like to thank our participants, Deborah Crook, John O'Brien, and Arthur Parsons. We'd also like to thank the entire LEGO Games team. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks@lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Bits and Bricks.